0: So does fixes. Maybe you love that jacket. He'll put the zipper back in. Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check them out at SkinOnSkins.com
1: Volunteer for the San Francisco Food Bank the San Francisco Food Bank relies on volunteers like you to help sort, package, and distribute healthy food to people in need in San Francisco. Each year, over 22,000 people contribute thousands of hours to fighting hunger in our community. The support will enable the SF Food Bank to distribute million pounds of food this year. Enough for 93,000 meals every day. But they can't do it without volunteers. Visit www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer. Again, www.sffoodbank.org slash volunteer to find out how you
3: Double, double, double It's pronounced mutiny. Mutiny! Yeah, it's it's pronounced mutiny! Mutiny! Uh, my turn-offs are guys who say mutiny. Mutiny? Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Hey! Mike Spiegelman. Oh, Mike Spiegelman. Hey! Mike Spiegelman. Hey! Mike Spiegelman. Uh, Mike Spiegelman. My, my single man! <laughs> Wait, you really are having a belt? <laughs> uh uh
4: just a quick belt before the show. Welcome to L W A F L M O Y T.
5: Let's watch a full-length
6: This is an old song written by Woody Guthrie back in the Depression days. And it uh, tells a story about these the people. They call them Okies and Arkies and stuff, you know, because they came from Oklahoma and, and Arkansas and, and uh, Texas and places. And the dust storm came and, and ruined their farms and, and their <clears throat> houses and everything. They had to get out, figured they couldn't do worse. Said, so long, it's been good to know you and we're moving west, and they got out there, they found all these uh, border police at the California border telling them to go back. And they said, we can't go back. He said, man, you can't stay here. And this little song tells about uh, what happened to him. Do re me.
7: by the mountains of sea Got that!
8: Good morning, mutineers. This is Labor and Love Radio. My name is Bill Morgan. You're here listening to Mutiny Radio, located at 2781 21st Street. That's right. We've got a physical address. Mutiny Radio is a true community arts center. We have art installations, we have video, we have a radio station. And we are the center, thanks to our station manager, Pam Benjamin, the very center of the underground comic art scene. Stand-up comedy. Come on down to Mutiny. Try out your licks. Come on down to Mutiny. For a nominal fee, you can have your own voice. You don't have to sit and listen to me all the time, just part of the time. Seriously, come on down to Mutiny in the heart of the mission district, El Meromero, Mero, 2781, 21st Street. And find your voice. Okay, our opening was with Well, the last one you heard was Rai Cooter singing Woody Guthrie's song about the Do-Re-Mi. The historical background is that Los Angeles City Police and State Highway Patrolmen in California were sent to the border of California with Nevada to keep people out in Arizona, to keep people out of California. <clears> the <throat> social services weren't nearly enough to deal with the influx of people. So, in a particularly kind of fascist solution to that problem, uh, the Los Angeles Police Department, the state of California, sent troops— their police, but there were troops—to the border to stop people and turn them away. And the song tells, yeah, okay, you're here. If you ain't got the do-re-mi, get out of here. Woody Guthrie. And before that, we had a couple of Tupac Shakur songs. California Love, paying homage to all the different areas of the state. And Changes. Beautiful, poetic rendition of Tupac's Wish. peace between the races that ever happened okay what do we got on for you today we've got radio labor our world labor report we've got labor news from the US a lot of teacher strike stuff today Minneapolis Minnesota Sacramento California teachers are on strike and there are actions planned all over the country. Locally, um, the Walnut Creek, I'm not sure what the name of that is, teachers have reached a settlement. As you know, in San Francisco, the teachers here have reached a settlement as well with the uh, UESF Teachers Union, but teachers are getting layoff notices Massive layoff notices. There's a state law, or it's in the uh, collective bargaining agreement, that if there's a possibility that you'll get laid off, they have to tell you by March 15th. So they have done that. A time when we need more teachers. Teachers are being laid off. Go figure. Somewhere, somehow, it makes sense to somebody, but uh, I'm not sure I understand, even though I was a teacher myself. And we will have a couple of Bay Area teachers calling in to discuss that issue around 11.30. So, thousands of Sacramento teachers walk out. Music by Sister Rosetta, Rosetta Tharp. Howard University victory from Maximilian Alvarez Ella Baker, mother of the Civil Rights Movement, Labor Leader, Bert Corona, McConnell Labor Leader. What's happening in Bessemer, Alabama where Amazon workers are have demanded and gotten a recount? They were defeated in a union election last year, but the National Labor Relations Board ruled that the company took unfair advantage in several ways. So there's going to be a recount. Okay, let's listen up to Radio Labor and our Radio Labor News. This
9: is Solidarity News on Radio Labor.
10: This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, March 25th, 2022. I'm Mark Pollinger. In the report this week, Labor's choice for the new head of the International Labor Organization is elected. Climate change and young women activists. The Labor Start report about union events and singing.
3: You knew Grandpa, you knew Grandpa,
7: so tell me what did you, tell me what you
10: do. This is Radio Labor. Labor's choice for the next Director General of the International Labor Organization has been elected. Gilbert Humboldt, a former prime minister of Togo, will become the 11th director general of the ILO in October 2022. He is the first African to head the organization in its 101-year history. The ILO is the U.N. agency focused on matters of work in the world. It sets minimum standards on issues such as wages and hours of work. It is managed in a tripartite manner by the social partners, governments, business, and labor. The head of the workers group at the ILO is Kathleen Pasquier. In the pre-election interviews of the candidates for the director general position, she asked Mr. Hungbo about his views concerning social justice and multilateral organizations, such as the World Trade Organization.
1: In your vision statement, Mr. Umbo, you propose the foundation of a global coalition for social justice. Can you explain how this would help to ensure that social justice is prioritized not only by the ILO, but also by other organizations in the multilateral system? Uh, You mentioned also international financial institutions, but in our experience they have often imposed reforms in many developing countries that have resulted in social injustice and the breaking down of social dialogue and collective bargaining how will you convince them to change course and cooperate more closely with the ILO to realize is it social justice mandates? And what role do you see in all of this for the workers' organizations in this global coalition?
11: Thank you so much. Again, this is a four question in one. Um, one is, uh, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, it's important for us to work with the IFI, with the World Trade uh, Organizations, and also with the climate-related um, organization, because ILO cannot do it um, cannot do it um, alone. My point, and also the G20 and the G7, uh, comes to my uh, to my mind, and the regional groupings. We we um, have to ensure that any agreement or any understanding on the way forward that's what i was giving the example of the sdr the, the special drawing right to ensure that is a requirement that part of it is addressing the inequalities or all the need uh, the needed for the, uh, the for the, uh, the the social uh, justice another dimension where we also need to work together is because the big elephant in the room uh, in in this universal um um, social protection, it will be the, the financing, which is key for the social justice. And, and also we have to be um, um, in, in, in innovative in, uh, in that. The other um, aspect that you are, you, you are raising in terms of uh, ILO moving uh, um, forward in, in this uh, um, coalition, we have to make better use of our social partners, not only in Geneva, but also at the national level and regional level, so I could not insist enough about, and I believe that is part of the the new uh, um, cooperation uh, um, development cooperation strategy that was adopted by the the, the, the GB, is to spend much more on the, um, capacity building of our social partners. And I'm linking that also with something that I believe if we can do much more uh, research specifically for some regions or that the result can be made available to our social partners so for them to be um, uh, much more um, equipped to um, um, assist the government. Linked to that and back to the role of the multilateral in the in the country. Um, you know, a standing issue that we have is to what extent the social partners participate effectively in in the the governmental processes in adopting policies or um, development strategies. And I know exactly the problem. I've been there from the government part, as ILO part, and when I was the UN part, so I know very well that problem is one issue that we also have to address by asking our colleagues sitting on the ground to really be more involved in the UN um, country team work.
10: Global unions are at the forefront of the efforts to mitigate the effects of climate change. Here is Seemarie Ainsborough with a report about a campaign being conducted by the Global Union Education International.
1: The Global Union Education International has been campaigning to publicize the linkage between women and climate change. Here's part of an EI webinar focused on climate change and young women unionists.
12: Hello, everyone. My name is Madeleine Kennedy-McFoy, and I work on policy research and advocacy at Education International. EI is a Global Federation of Education Unions and represents 32 million teachers in 383 organizations across 178 countries. The theme today is gender equality today for a sustainable tomorrow. Joe Grady is the general secretary of the University and College Union in the UK. UCU's members are on strike right now, over deteriorating employment conditions and pension cuts. Thanks a lot, Joe, for taking the time to be with us today. And please
0: extend our solidarity to all of the Higher Education Union staff who have been striking. I'm the General Secretary of UCU, which is the University and College Union. We are the largest post-16 union um, in the world. Um, and we represent workers in the UK who work in any kind of post 16 education. So in in the UK, that's further education colleges, higher education, but we also represent people who teach in adult education and also who teach people um, in prison. So we kind of cover a lot of different types of professionals who work in education and not just teachers. And my role, uh, I have the honor of being the person who is the elected leader of that union. Um, I was elected in 2019. Um, Prior to the election, I worked in education myself as a lecturer at university. So I kind of tread this line between being a member of staff of the union the only elected member of staff.
12: So I want to ask you about what that experience has been like for you. What differences did being a woman and
0: being young make to the journey that you've been on to become a leader? Um, I think in trade unions, which, you know, just for the context, you know, have traditionally, not always, but traditionally in the UK context at least, you know, they emerged out of male dominated industries and you know and they did so you know kind of like 100 years ago and obviously as time has gone by uh, you know they've expanded their membership and their campaigning priorities to include women and also you know other kind of marginalized groups because you know new trade unions were firmly kind of male and white dominated so I think it's important that people who are not that category have now started taking greater roles in unions and leading them and there are other female general secretaries in the UK but it is rare to have a young woman there is one other young woman similar age to me who's leading a union Um, and I think it's fair to say that the challenges um, I think are what women in in numerous industries face of um, not being taken as seriously or Even if you are taken seriously, I think, you know, you get those kind of microaggressions of people trying to diminish your efforts or your achievements or somehow suggesting that maybe you were lucky. I know when I ran for election of the union, despite the fact that I got my PhD at 25, I was called a vanity-driven lightweight, uh, you know, for having the audacity um, to decide to put myself forward to run the union. So I think you get a lot of people still who are very wedded to are comfortable with the way things used to be and I think they get quite threatened when they see someone who in their opinion um, you know should be waiting their turn Um, and I think that's I think in a way great because um, if your audacity and your confidence and your vision for what something should look like and be different threatens people I think that's good people are inspired and people have joined the union and people want to see different campaigning priorities so I really don't mind if that's the kind of attitude I get from some people. Yes, you're
12: troubling some very deep structures by being who you are and occupying the positions that you're occupying.
1: An extended version of the interview with Joe Grady, the General Secretary of the University and College Union in the UK, can be found at radiolabor.net.
10: Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder.
13: This week, our top story section included links to coverage of the International Labour Organization's resolution condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine, how trade unions honoured the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, and an analysis of how Canadian unions weathered not just the pandemic, but also the right-wing backlash against public health measures. But my favorite top story of the week was the very good news for change from Cambodia, where a number of trade union leaders were released from prison, in part because of the support of those Labour Start readers who participated in a global online solidarity action. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news of the escalation of the struggle by rural children's development workers, all of them women in India, of a victory for Malaysian unions that will see an increase to the length of maternity leave there and the election of the first woman to lead a major trade union in Indonesia. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week includes an Australian union's court case which seeks to force McDonald's restaurants in that country to provide proper rest breaks for workers, a Peruvian construction union's victory in getting the weight of sacks of concrete reduced, and yet more horror stories from workers in the Bangladesh's shipbreaking industry. We also had coverage of the assassination and imprisonment of media workers and other attacks on journalists across Latin America, in East Africa, and of course in Ukraine. Our current photo of the week is of workers in Uruguay as they rallied in anticipation of a national referendum on the 27th of March. The referendum is the result of a huge petition-organizing effort by the PIT-CNT Union Federation that generated 700,000 signatures in that small country. It aims to overturn draconian legislation, restricting, among other things, the right to strike. Check our Uruguay news page on Monday for the results. Best of luck to our Uruguayan comrades. LaborStart hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. In just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blacketter from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Australia's Victorian
10: Trade Union Choir with You Knew Grandpa, You Knew.
9: No!
3: You knew our world would be in trouble
7: as your emissions grew and grew. You said it's only froth and bubble, but did you really
3: have a clue? You knew Grandpa, you knew Grandpa, so tell me what did you tell me what you do? You knew Grandma, you from 2013 We hope it's getting through to you Why did your past stay so dirty How come you didn't just renew You left your seat to above us While you just flew and flew and flew You chose a funny way to love us To leave a greenhouse warming you knew grandpa, you knew grandpa, so tell me what did you tell me what you do? You knew grandma, you knew grandma. So tell me what did you do? You knew you really couldn't hack it to make the change when it was due. And now it's gonna cost a packet to fix. What you neglected to You knew grandpa, you knew Grandpa.
9: This is Solidarity News on Radio
10: Labour. Hello, I'm Mark Belanger. Picture this. You're in the hospital with COVID-19. Your family is not allowed to visit. And you are not sure you will live through the night. There's only you and a night shift nurse. Here from the Labour CD Fallen Heroes, Songs for Essential Workers is a nurse's lullaby. nurse's lullaby was written by timothy sheard and sung by tracy garrison feinberg and jacob
8: okay that was a nurse's lullaby beautiful song recalling the work That nurses and other medical workers are doing in the midst of this pandemic keep everybody healthy, as healthy as they can. Uh, For that, we had, we knew, you knew, Grandpa, we knew, you knew, Grandpa, you knew. You knew what was going on. And uh, let's top it off. Another. About. Oh, we were gonna play Van Morrison. It was good to play Van Morrison. And I wanted to play from Sister Rosetta Tharp. This one's called Rock Me.
14: Now won't you hear me Wendy? Yeah, The words that I'm singing, Mudge my soul with water I'm on high While the world of love is around me Oh God Oh if you leave me I will die You just hide me in my bosom Tell us the of life is over oh, rock me in the cradle of thy love Oh, this at home above. See, I'm maintaining, I just go on uncomplaining. But before this time, another year, oh, my life may me overtake me. And death may overtake me. But if I am with him, I have no need to fear Just hide me in thy bosom Tell the sun of life is over Rock me in the cradle of thy love Oh, defeat me And I want no more Then you take me to your blessed home above You just make my burden tighter. Help me to do good wherever I can. Oh, let Thou presence thrill me. Thou loving kindness fill me. Then you hold me in the hollow of Thy hand.
8: Sorry about that, we're getting a little.
14: He loved me faithfully. I think we got it. I could not live apart from him. I love to feel him now. Though so we dwell together, I know it's my man and I. My man and I. I know it's my man and I. We dwell together, my man and I I know it's my man I'm talking about my man, ain't I? Oh, we dwell together I know it's my man, ain't I? I tell them all of my worries I tell them all of my woes I tell them all that pleases me Tells him what in know. Oh, he tells me what I ought to do. And he tells me what you like. Oh, we talk together. I know it's my man, and I. My man, and I. I know it's my man. my name, ain't I? Oh, we talk together, I know it's my name, ain't I? He knows how I am longing for somewhere it's so to win. And so he bids me to go and speak a loving word for him. Oh, he bids me to tell of this wonderful dove and why he ascended on high And so we work together I know it's my man and I He knows how much I love him Oh, he knows that I love him well And with what love he loveth me My tongue can't never tell It's an everlasting love And it's every rich supply so we love each other, I know it's my man and I.
8: And that, along with a lot of static, was uh, Sister Rosetta Tharp, one of the real pioneers of um, electric guitar and uh, a gay black woman. Rosetta Tharp fought the the rather familiar battle that a lot of artists fought, 40s, 50s, 60s, even up to now, of playing devil's music, rock and roll, or gospel music. So Rosetta Tharp uh, kind of worked those same, those two, Avenues. Okay. So before that we had uh, Radio Labor. Radio Labor and, and Nurse's Lullaby. Beautiful. Beautiful thing. Let's talk a little about some labor actions that are going on right now. Got Sister Rosetta on for another one. Thousands of Sacramento teachers strike as Minneapolis walkout continues. Like I say, we're gonna have a couple of teachers on later in the show. Um, Teachers last year i mean in the last couple of years have surprised everyone teachers have been the public employees employees in general who have been the most militant even in the reddest states um i guess we'll we'll take this up let's see Sacramento, that's a local one. Let's see what's happening in Sacramento. Thousands of Sacramento teachers strike as Minneapolis walkout continues. Thousands of teachers and other school workers in Sacramento walked off the job Wednesday as the California capital became the second big US school district this month to see a work stoppage over pay and staffing shortages as a teacher strike in Minneapolis entered its third week. The disputes in Sacramento and Minneapolis where teachers walked out on March 8th came as school districts across the country deal with fallout from the coronavirus pandemic and limited refor- resources. Across the country, union workers are seizing the opportunity posed by tight labor markets to recover some of the power they feel they have lost in recent decades as unions shrank in size and influence thanks to the unremitting efforts of teachers themselves who brought cases against their own unions. Janus Rule. Experts expect to see more labor strife as the country emerges from the pandemic. Sacramento City Unified School District canceled classes Wednesday at its 76 schools, affecting 43,000 teachers. After negotiations failed with the Sacramento City Teachers Association and SEIU Local 1021, the unions representing 1,800 teachers and 1,800 school employees voted overwhelmingly earlier this month to strike. Teachers say Sacramento has serious staffing shortages despite federal funding and a district budget surplus that it could tap. District has misplaced priorities and no, has no sense of urgency said Union President Dave Fisher. These labor actions are part of a trend across the country that started with a pandemic, said Steve Smith, a spokesman for the California Labor Federation. Workers are really fed up with poor treatment, generally few safety protections, low pay. Many of these are essential workers who really stepped up to keep our economy going. Union, okay, so that's Sacramento. Sacramento District said that the 2% pay increase it proposes what it can afford. It's also offering to pay 100% 100% of health care coverage elsewhere in northern California teachers in the Mount Diablo district in the Bay Area reached a tentative agreement on Saturday in Sonoma County's Cotati Road and Park District teachers returned to work last Thursday after a six-day strike More than 4,500 educators and support staff are still on strike in Minneapolis, where negotiations have been acrimonious. The talks have yielded incremental progress on the big issues of pay, class size, and better mental health supports for the district's 29,000 students, but no breakthroughs. Union leaders have insisted that the Minneapolis district is flush with cash, thanks in part to pandemic relief funds, while district administrators say they aren't. District says the last, best, and final offer it made this week would require at least $10 million in budget cuts. School board chairman, Kim Ellison, called it a robust offer that significantly raises pay and should be more than sufficient to figure out an agreement that works for both parties minneapolis administrators have pointed out that the approximately seventy million dollars in federal aid in their budget is one-time money that would force painful cuts when it runs out sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg, who helped break a stalemate between teachers and district in 2017, argued both sides that there's everything possible to end the strike immediately. Kids have missed enough school. Their education and mental health are at stake. They will continue to suffer if the adults continue to fight among themselves. Unfortunately, Mr. Steinberg... (laughs) for whom I have the greatest respect, by the way. What's good for teachers ends up being what's good for kids. Okay? It's the teachers who are working face-to-face with the kids. If they are well, if they are fairly paid and have benefits, they can do much better job administration doesn't want to spend money because it's one-time money what's it going to be used for you have the you have the choice of either funding the teachers or I guess sitting on the money or spending it on other things outside of the classroom it's one of the great uh, Contradictions of the education system that the further away you get from the classroom, the more money you get paid. Okay. So that's the teacher strike. A historic victory for Howard University, who are some teachers. Let's listen to Maximilian Alvarez, who's editor-in-chief of the Real News Network. And we won't hear the whole thing, but Howard is a historically black university named after a union general named O. Howard, who put a lot of his money into uh, establishing a university where african-americans could get a education
5: reporting from washington dc in front of the historic howard university at nine a.m. on wednesday march twenty-third hundreds of non-tenure track faculty at howard were set to go on strike after trying for over three years to negotiate their first union contract with the university administration. Then, in the late hours of the night, around 3.30 a.m., just hours before the strike was supposed to begin, the bargaining team in the university administration reached a tentative agreement and the union called off the strike. Members of SEIU Local 500 will now review and vote on the tentative agreement in the coming weeks. To talk about this historic struggle, I got to sit down with Corey Lamont, a lecturer in the English department in the Howard College
15: of Arts and Sciences. So hi, I'm, I'm Corey Lamont. I was a graduate student at Howard uh, from 2008 to 2015. Um, and then I came on, or was hired as a lecturer um, at that point. I am currently a master instructor. I've been a master instructor for um, past two years, uh, are th- this is my second year being a master instructor, um, and so I'm part of the bargaining unit um, of lecturers, master instructors, and adjunct faculty.
5: Well, Corey, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me. Um, it's been a wild 24 hours for you guys, right? <laughs> it, <laughs> so,
15: it has been.
5: Yeah, so I mean, like, we're, we're here across the street from Howard, um, and, you know, this morning at 9 a.m., uh, the lectures union was set to go on strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we got word at 3.30 in the morning, the uh, <laughs> yes. bargaining team actually hammered out a tentative agreement with the university that has been over three years mm-hmm. in the making. So mm-hmm. I guess before we sort of talk about the significance of finally reaching this point, I wanted, wanted to ask if you could just walk us through what the past 24 hours have been like for you waiting to see if this contract uh, would happen, preparing for a strike. I guess just walk us through what it's been like.
15: Yeah, um, a little bit of a roller coaster, I think. Um, So I know that because we had sort of a rally last week that was uh, well supported uh, by students. And so um, I was preparing uh, since last Wednesday, actually, after the rally and the strike was announced that Depending on what happens with negotiations, that um, we would be on strike. And so I was, you know, had to prepare my students from then. And so um, up to yesterday, last night, because when I left class on Monday, um, I kind of let them know listen, um, you know, it's a possibility that we might not have class. And so, but just, you know, look out for an email. And so uh, I think. Initially, I went to bed because I was uh, monitoring communications throughout the day. Um, I went to bed a little bit after eight because I generally try to get to bed before nine because I do most of my Mm. work grading, um, like in the early hours of the morning. So when I went to bed like a little bit before nine, um, they were still in negotiations. And so at that point, I had no clue. So I was like, okay, I guess we're striking tomorrow. Um, I got up at 11 something. They were still in negotiation, based on the last message I received. So I was like, "Okay, so we're definitely striking." Mm-hmm. But at that point, I didn't actually go to bed. Um, I, I stayed up and started doing some work. And then, at that point, because the agreement, the, the, the tentative agreement was reached around 3:30. Funny enough, that was the time I actually, shortly before that or around that time, I emailed my students because I hadn't actually checked and gotten that email yet so like i said it's been a bit of a roller coaster i mean i was in fact relieved to know that we've reached a tentative agreement but as i said it was just um a lot of uncertainty um i think just in the moment itself or what it would mean um for us i think it was like i said it was sort of difficult just hoping at least um even if we did have to strike today that hopefully negotiations would continue and we would actually get to an agreement by friday so uh, i was very pleased actually um, like I said, even though it was a bit of a roller coaster, I was actually very pleased that we had reached an agreement uh, this morning.
5: I bet, man. And, and as we were saying, like, it's, it should not be lost on people who are watching or, or listening to this that, um, you know, I know we get very excited about uh, a strike when it happens and that mm-hmm. becomes our focus. Yes. But it's important to recognize that, like, it, it took a strike threat. after three plus years of Mm -hmm. trying to negotiate with the university after lectures voted to form a union to actually get to this point, like that is that is just bonkers that it took so long. (laughs) So I was wondering if we could kind of zoom out a bit and talk about um, that long road to getting to this point um, and and what um, folks in the union have really been trying to get the, the
15: university to negotiate over. Okay. Um, so let's start with the last thing, which is what we were trying to get the... And It's funny, and it's not you, um, because this is something that popped up in our bargaining sessions. Um, so one of the things when I talk, I because language is important, <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. an English teacher. Um, one of the things I stress is that when I talk about negotiations, I say the administration and not the university. Mm. And I do that deliberately because um, a recognition of faculty are part of the university, right? Yes, the administration is negotiating on behalf of the university, but faculty is part of the university. Okay. I think um, I took bridge to being in bargaining sessions and then having introductions at the beginning and folks saying, well, we're here representing the university. And I'm like, like, what? Who who am I? (laughs) (laughs) So what are we? So like I said, I'm very careful about saying um, the administration, right? Because faculty are part of the university. And so, um, but yeah, so what we are, we were in fact uh, trying to negotiate were some very basic things, right? Um, I don't think, and if anyone has sort of read what the quote unquote demands were, they were fairly reasonable. Um, They revolved largely around two things, right? A living wage, essentially, or or, or a fair compensation, uh, whatever, you know, that sort of pans out to be. Um, And like I said, I don't know how closely folks have followed, but um, to recognize that, um, you know, lecturers at Howard are um, some of the lowest paid, right? compared to our peer institutions. And so and DC's not a cheap place to live. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> um, and I think there there were two other issues, I think, well, the one issue really was um, job security. Mm-hmm. And and so we approached that in a couple of ways, which is one had to do with uh, length of contracts, um, because currently, uh, lecturers are hired on annual contracts, so um, you know we have to reapply for our jobs at the end of every you know academic year. Well, not at the end, because we have to start the application process a little bit somewhere midway for mm-hmm. it to you know go through the process, and so you know. Part of the sticking point was to make sure that at least, if we can get longer contracts. So part of the proposal, or at least the initial proposal, was at least maybe the first year can be uh, probationary, but then after that, subsequent to that, if we can have um, longer contracts, because it's it's difficult, you know, for folks who have families, right? Um, folks have to pay their bills, so each year having to figure out whether or not you're going to be rehired, it's a difficult sort of uh, process to go through. Um, and so, con- you know, the length of contracts was was one, and the other was, um, you know, the seven-year cap that Howard has. Which, as I said, I- I've yet to hear someone provide me with an explanation that I can fully sort of appreciate as to why the university. Um, you know, continues to hold this position that after seven years uh, of, you know, yearly renewals, unless you move to master instructor or career status, then you're no longer subject to that rule, but then that you're arbitrarily dismissed from the university after seven years, or you've sort of, you know, outlived your usefulness, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was also a major sticking point because we felt like, at least for me, um, because I said I've been at Howard for a minute. Uh, I was a graduate student um, from 2008 to 2015, and so I've been in that department for a number of years, right? And I've seen, you know, faculty who were beloved um, by students beloved by the department. I've seen the department you know, go to bat for faculty okay. and seeing them have to leave just because of this rule. And I'm just like, how does this actually make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, what you want is as a university, if you're building institutional culture, you want people with institutional knowledge, mm-hmm. right? You want people who the students love and appreciate. Um, and the fact is, if you're building the people with the most experience, and so it just, it doesn't make a lot of
8: was the uh, zorba dance aka the hasapiko butcher's dance those names are kind of intermingled and mixed depending on what part of greece your family is from uh and i played it because march 25th which just passed was greek independence day <clears throat> beginning of the Greek Revolution of 1821 and like many things Greek there's a lot of disagreement about when the revolution actually started uh, Holiday acknowledges the successful Greek War of Independence from 1821 to 1829 which was fought to liberate and decolonize Greece from four centuries of Ottoman occupation <clears throat> was the year 1453 when the Turkish, Seljuk Turks, took over Greece, conquered Constantinople, the Greek capital, and turned it into their own capital, Istanbul. And from 1453 to 1821, Greece was under Turkish rule. In many places, the Greek Orthodox religion had to be practiced underground. Um, The Turks colonized Greece. They had uh, agreements with local Greek chieftains and leaders. The revolution began in southern Greece and the... area called the Magni, the Peloponnese, and uh, Magni is the root of the word maniac, because the a lot of the, the tribes in central Greece were not really ruled by the Turks. The Turks would come out and show up from their towers, their towers all over Greece were the Turkish occupation troops were housed, and uh, they would come out if there was an insurrection against the Turks, but they did allow the the Greek chieftains, the the mountain tribes, to fight against one another, the families. And this undermined many of the uh, nation's Greek independence movements. So, March 25th, 1821, you go around and you say, Zito y Alas. Okay, a little change of pace now. I I want to appreciate a couple of Latinos, labor leaders. One is Bert Corona, and one is Luisa Moreno, so... We'll begin with Luisa Moreno. And uh, this is an address she gave in 1949 to the California CIO. Luisa Moreno was a labor organizer who worked with uh, tobacco rollers in uh, In Florida, farm workers, California, she wrote, has become prosperous with the toil and sweat of Mexican immigration. Moreno came to New York from Guatemala in 1928 and worked as a seamstress in Harlem. He was radicalized during a 1930 demonstration where she saw police beating protesters. He worked with Latina and African-American cigar rollers in Florida, pecan workers in Texas, along with uh, Emma Tenayuca. She settled in California to organize cannery workers and became a leading voice opposing the beatings of young Mexicans by servicemen during the so-called Zoot Suit Riots. He was deported to Mexico in 1950 at the height of the Red Scare. If they called you a communist, you were gone. Luisa Moreno. So let's listen up and hear hear what she had to say. Addressed to the California CIO.
16: Strange things are happening in this land, and only when the truth is widely known can we put a stop to them. I received a summons to appear before Jack Tenney's very un-American committee, where a vicious attack was made against my union. My duty was to defend it, and so I did. Regardless of the committee's threats against my then-pending citizenship, I refused to answer their questions on constitutional grounds. My answer is that the United States Constitution is more important to me than citizenship. These threatened exiles of a long time resident are conveniently cloaked in certain legalities. The Smith Act of 1940. In the case of so-called aliens like myself, the said law claims the power of retroactivity Does this not violate the United States Constitution? What can happen if illegalities begin to mount into pyramids? You know the answer. I knew it very early in my life. I was born in a tragic land, a land in bondage this Latin American alien came here to assist you in the building and extending of American democracy. From New York to Florida, from Florida to Texas to California, in several states, in many cities, I became part of the struggle for better working conditions, for better pay, for improvements to the deplorable conditions of women workers, Negro workers, Mexican workers. We fought in the midst of KKK terror. We were jailed for daring to strike. We fought desperately for the right to organize. You also remember it. Most of you lived through it, too. And now in my case, after investing the years of my life, seeking no posts or honor, nor financial wealth, but simply peace. After this investment, the dividend is paid in a most un-American manner, with a deportation warrant. I stand before you, a member of a union, forced out of retirement to speak up in my own defense against conditions that make such persecutions possible. Tragically, the unmistakable signs are before us. Us who really love America. And it is we who must sound the alarm. For it seems that the fight for the very fundamentals of American democracy must be fought for and reestablished again. Sound the alarm. Expose the growing triangle of terror, corruption, propaganda. I feel confident for my defense is in your powerful hands and the hands of the liberal-minded people of this country. The words of the great American socialist Debs comes to mind. The court of the final resort is the people and that court will be heard from in due time.
8: That was a young woman named Rachel O'Hanlon Rodriguez reading a speech given in 1949 by Luiso Moreno against the House Un-American Activities Committee and one of its agents, Jack Tenney, who used the issue of communism to get his way and and to rise in city politics. A red baiter. A little later after this speech, he would use, he and his allies would use that issue to take land and build a base from people, and build a baseball stadium instead of giving them the promised new apartments that they were that they were promised listen to bert corona we don't have much by bert corona saying um, bert corona was a civil rights leader and labor leader worked with every nearly every major mexican american organization organized workers for the CIA and fought on behalf of immigrants. By the time of the Chicano movement in the 60s and 70s, he was known as El Viejo, the old man. His father was a commander in Francisco Villas División del Norte. His family was murdered in Chihuahua. He was an anarcho syndicalist and member of the Partido Liberal Mexicano. Uh, Bert Corona was born in El Paso. His father continued his uh, clandestine activities. Just a second. hello hello Jeremiah one second please okay go ahead okay okay pardon me um let me finish here talking about Bert Carone, and I'll be on with you in a minute of people on the line, a couple of teachers from uh, Bay Area districts. How do you do? Can you hear me? Oh, good. Good, I can hear you. I'm using my real voice, my real name. <laughs> okay, so first of all, let me thank you for um, agreeing to come on the show and give your point of view. And like... Like I say, this is a uh, it's a program about working people and their jobs. So I'd like to start out right now with you, the two of you. Uh, what's it like being a teacher in your district right now? You're both teachers before the uh, pandemic and the current crisis. Um, what are the major differences that you've found? Go ahead. Either one can tell me
17: uh-huh Uh-huh
4: and and um you know, I would say um, people pushing a certain kind of agenda that has caused fear among the faculty and among the the students as well. Mm-hmm. and that's um, so specifically, what I'm my main concern of was with the students and their mental health. And I think that has really suffered, uh, especially during the the whole lockdown period, which was, you know, extensive, um, for example, um, and this is from, I looked this up at, uh, UCSF and, you know, Benioff the children's hospital in San Francisco. And they're also citing CDC data. They said that the, the risk to children um, uh, 0 to 19 years old of having any kind of severe injury or death due to COVID is 0.003%. So it's negligible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's p- practically zero.
18: Yeah, it's
8: 0.0003%. Okay. Okay.
4: So, but, but that's, not, that's not what we're being told by the school district, by our admin. You know, we're, we're being told that all the children need to get uh, vaccinated, that all the teachers should be vaccinated, but this is actual CDC data showing that there's very, very, very little risk to anyone uh, zero to 19 years old. I asked my students what they thought the risk would be if they contracted COVID Um, that that the risk of them having serious injury or death and some of these students these are like bright top students they said they thought it would be 70 Uh percent like seven zero percent and the actual risk is almost statistically zero
18: less than zero (laughs) less
11: than so yeah okay i
18: i would echo that 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 the biggest problem for me as a teacher and and just going back to your introduction, we've, we've both been teachers for, for well over 20 years. So, you know, we've been through a lot. <laughs> we've seen a lot. Um, and, of course, we have family members of previous generations who've been teachers, and we're both uh, local from this area going back several generations. So I, I, I feel like our perspective is very broad, you know. And um, this has been really the hardest thing that we've ever had to experience as, as teachers, and I think one of the really difficult things has been this atmosphere of division, because, you know, in the past, you always felt like your colleagues had your back, your union had your back, we were in the fight together. But now, because of this um, extreme atmosphere of fear, nobody's been able to talk about how they feel, Mm -hmm. what they think, and what they're actually really afraid of. And I was actually um, intrigued that you kind of started your last um, little segment here was about the McCarthy era, era. and uh, I said to my nameless partner here, I said, well, that's perfect because that's exactly what we feel is going on right now. Um, And he can share a story from a faculty meeting where, You know, there was a discussion about, you know, a COVID-related thing, and we don't have to go into it if you don't want to get into the details, but of course, this is the thing that's been, you asked about teaching, this is (laughs) what's been so hard. You know, one faculty member just kind of broached a slightly different point of view about I don't even remember whether it was masks or or, or vaccines no or mandates or anything. And the whole rest of the meeting piled on him. And so that was ex- an experience of his. I've had the same experience. Um, I had that experience online where um, I was part of a Facebook group of um, SFUSD teachers, of, um, of members. And uh, there was some kind of off-the-cuff criticism that I rebutted, and I said, hey, look at this information over here that maybe you haven't seen. And it was immediately like the response towards me was thuggery. It was like literally people were like putting me down, insulting me personally, making assumptions about me um, that were absolutely not true about my political affiliations and so on. And and they were they were really mean and nasty. And so this atmosphere of support and camaraderie uh, in the in the school and the faculty is gone. Now I feel like I'm in a gulag. I feel like I'm in a place where I cannot speak my mind. I cannot ask my questions because okay. it will be stomped, stomped, stomped. You know, and I'll be classified as uh, some kind of freak.
8: Okay, let me. Let me just um, bust in here and ask you, what has the response of the union? Has the union been helpful, or has the union kind of gone along with the mainstream arguments? Okay, so
4: um, Frank Lara, to his credit, of UESS, did acknowledge that there are... uh, union members who are hesitant or who are questioning the mainstream narrative Mm -hmm. um and that was the first time i actually heard a union leader even mention or speak to you know people in in you know i would consider myself in in that category i do not consider myself to be um anti-vaccine in any way but i have questions about all of it i have questions about the safety and i feel like the that, uh, you know, there's a lot of data coming out now, Pfizer data and things like that, showing that there's, you know, actual fraud in their safety studies that they put out to put those put those vaccines out there. But Frank Lara, he said that, he estimated, he said it what they said 2% of the union, they said, is, um, you know, hesitant. And I think that's an undercount from my experience. I think a lot of people are not, you know, putting their information out there or putting themselves out there because they're afraid, you know, they're afraid of losing their job or they're afraid of being targeted. Um, Like we mentioned, there was, you know, uh, one, you know, another faculty member in in my school had questions about the, the J and J shot. And they said, they said, I heard that there were some, some issues with it. And, um, there was like a, an immediate, piling on and everybody like you know shutting shutting this person down and not willing to even consider his question but um so frank Lara says two percent so if two percent of six thousand five hundred is what you know not a lot of people but those are still you know union members right so i feel like there needs to be at least some acknowledgement of those are union members and we have rights as well and uh That hasn't really been the case. I think that the union, sadly, has bought into the whole um, CDC, you know, big pharma-promoted narrative.
18: And they don't seem to be asking teachers what they actually think. It's all top-down, and that's the problem that I'm seeing everywhere in all sectors of society, not just the union. It's in the district. It's in the school administration and it seems to be uh, in all levels of government, the message is coming top-down. Here's what you need to think. Here's what you need to say. Here's what you need to do. And I'm sorry, but that's not democracy. And
4: and if you, and if you don't, you're a right-wing conspiracy theorist. Right? <laughs>
18: uh-huh.
8: Okay, so what about the administration? What has the administration done to... Support teachers in this situation. If any then.
4: Um, I mean they're they're also promoting the exact same same narrative um as as you know as our are, are most people. You know?
18: It's been the same top down kind of yeah. thing. And uh-huh. you know, going back, you know, I'm gonna bring up another example where um we saw the union leadership the national leadership just kind of like taking their idea and running with it without ever talking to the membership uh that was during during the presidential election way back when um bernie sanders was running you know and uh we have campaigned for bernie through his two elections we're staunch uh progressives on the far left and and we were really shocked to see that, the, um, that Randy Weingarten was announcing you know, a, another candidate that the uh, union was going to support. And it's okay, well, the union is going to endorse somebody, and that's fine, but they never asked us. Like, they were speaking on our behalf, but there was never any kind of survey, conversation, or invitation to express um, a different point of view. Right, and they so just, it feels like the the management, the um, union leadership at all levels—we're talking from local, San Francisco, all the way to the national level—just decides what they think is right and tells us what it is.
8: Yeah, well, then in, in one bad, poll after another, the uh, rank and file supported Bernie Sanders as opposed to you know the the union hierarchy, which. Like you say, without even asking anybody, you know, supported, endorsed Hillary Clinton.
4: Uh, another example is the the CFT, uh, California Federation of Teachers, apparently donated twenty thousand uh, dollars to support uh, Dr. Richard Pan, who has uh, been promoting um, very heavily vaccines for for children. Mm-hmm. So um, that's of concern, you know, that my union money i pay my union dues i'm you know a proud union member um but you know i was never consulted on that they're going to use that money which from? you know which from my point of view is is going to then potentially harm children um uh so when when i mentioned that the 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 benioff data what I, what's what i was getting to and this i've experienced this when you know we we taught Students all during COVID, all during lockdown. Um, we had to meet, you know, there were all kinds of equity issues. We had to actually meet students and hand out little hotspots and, and uh, Chromebooks to them so that they could get online, so that they could go to their courses. And I've had to, you know, like coach students through all that and help them walk them through all these things. And I literally saw a student on on in a zoom session show me where he was cutting himself so um the mental health crisis you know the the ucsf benioff children's hospital said the mental health crisis is severe um they said they've seen a 75 percent increase in children needing immediate hospitalization due to mental health issues so a 75 percent increase is not insignificant and if you look at you know the 75% increase of mental health issues needing hospitalization immediately, that means, you know, like someone killing themselves potentially, Mm -hmm. Um, versus the statistical data of, you know, close to zero for injury and death does not outweigh. the the, From COVID, the risk-benefit analysis doesn't add up there at all.
18: (laughs) And Uh so this is where we feel like, you know what we see in the classroom every day, and these these numbers absolutely reflect what our experiences. You know, we've seen our students really, really deeply struggling. Yes. And also, we have four children of our own, teenagers and and youth, and so we see in their friends and in them like the the results of this lockdown. And so this is why this lack of ability to ask questions this atmosphere of mccarthyism really is so deeply harmful because here we are we're the ones that are closest to the students we can report back we can make suggestions we can give our feedback but that's not allowed it's not it's not only not asked for it's um punished and you know i mean i was never able to say for example hey What about the Great Barrington Declaration, where Stanford um, medical researcher, Dr. Ph.D. Jay Bhattacharya suggested that, you know, lockdowns were not actually the best approach to something like COVID, which has, it doesn't have such a bad effect on the the general population. It's very, very bad for people 75 and older. Mm -hmm. It's very dangerous for people existing conditions but children we locked down children and and we're still like we know that you know as english teachers you know trying to teach a kid to um speak you know <laughs> new vocabulary words speaking and listening reading and writing all of these things are are all intertwined and we can't speak we can't even hear each other Our students, many of them are still in masks, and in my school, it's still not optional to wear a mask, and we literally just can't understand each other all day long. (laughs) You know, my voice hurts, and I um, I had a student teacher in my class, and he just couldn't believe it. He said, I go home and my voice, I'm in pain all night because I'm having to scream through this N95 mask and yet like what do the masks actually do there are they having some effect on that point zero 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 three percent of risk you know um recently news came out that they asked the cdc well how many children actually died from covid and and the cdc responded this was a foia request right freedom of information act that uh reporters and a uh, legal team asked for the CDC's response was, we don't know. We don't have that data. Like, potentially none.
4: They're not tracking it.
18: They said they weren't tracking it. Of course, other other headlines came out and said that the CDC's adjusting that number because they had overcounted. And, of course, we've heard that a bunch of times now over the past year of how COVID deaths and COVID dangers had been overcounted. So it's really important that all of us, you know we can't. We can't be a society where everybody's deaf and dumb and blind, and we just rely on our leadership to tell us what to think and what to do. Um, that's not only undemocratic. It's. It's not. It, it, you get bad results. We need a. You know a meritocracy. We need a collaboration where everybody's looking at what they know and sharing and talking and. You know the marketplace of ideas. Ben Franklin. You know. We have to have um, people exchanging ideas and information and free open debate. Not this atmosphere, like some kind of totalitarian country where you're going to be punished for your job, where
8: you're going to be canceled, where you're going to be outed. Okay, if you don't agree with the orthodox I'm running out of time here. I want to appreciate your coming on and appreciate, you know, giving your ideas and your opinions. I think there's a lot of sense in in the things that you say, and hopefully we'll see the situation improve. Uh, Hopefully we'll come out of this with a better, you know, education system than we went in with. But again, thank you very much. Talk we to hope you so soon. too, Bill. I mean, we hope that next time we could be on your
18: show and um, not have to hide by not revealing our names because we're so afraid of, of, of people attacking us or of losing our jobs. Just, just to say something as simple as let's have a debate. <laughs> um, we really appreciate the opportunity you've
8: given for us to be heard because we don't get that very much. Okay. All right. Talk to can you I, later. Can I, can, I, can I leave you with- Uh, a little Malcolm X quote that I like Malcolm X said if you're not careful the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing Uh, that's something I try to to keep in mind okay all right. talk to you later may
18: may inspire us forward
8: thank you Bill bye -bye. bye 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 bye
19: The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest, and everybody knows
8: Okay, this is the bee signing off. That interview took about twice as long as uh, I had expected, but um, the people are passionate about what they believe. And um, some of the things they have to say, I think we all need to listen to. Um, This is the bee signing off. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. See you next week. Stay tuned for Flat Black Plastic coming right up with Scott Walker.
19: Lord have mercy on this land of mine We all gonna get it in due time I don't belong here, I don't belong there I've even stopped believing in prayer
3: on a
10: raft without a pattern. the Internet what Ocean has to goods, offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, back back or back I now, ain't scurvy shit faced McRat.
3: International
2: up banking, black, diplomatic and cables, women, nuclear uh, uh, missile you know, launch right? codes all so rely thought, on unbreakable good. encryption. What if these codes were no longer secure? That That nightmare scenario seems to be a reality. A shadowy underworld syndicate is auctioning off access to the the world's encrypted secrets. The only plausible explanation for this ability? Someone has achieved the holy grail of code-breaking quantum quantum computing. Veteran CIA peaceful, agent John Clooney must track down the perpetrators and retrieve this Don't technology for the U.S. government. And it's personal, God, as the Enigma God. brokers have already yeah, cost the lives of his fellow like agents, a, perhaps including husband, his partner. But like, John Wessex, I'm, The I Enigma turn, Brokers, is the first book I'm of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on
3: Amazon. I get the recording rights and shit. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny?
7: He well, here, my 30 dogs 30 think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, in, do you, you ever want to be
3: like in front of an audience show, other than like squirrels, and dogs, and dead persons? Like well, well, he you hear from coughing,
7: or coughing, and she just called him out what
3: you, no, come you come here for? To joke workshop, you come here to talk to see me? There's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and
6: they ain't even going to be jerks about it. You know, damn! I think
8: she was, are you serious? You know, just, I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even crazy. say
3: nice things, dude, well, before no they tell you how to get their, improvements.
8: Sometimes the no is way. Away. What it's is good, this dang damn it, thing all
3: It's yeah, Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday,
6: 6 8 p.m. PM
3: on the Mutant Radius. You are saying I can tell my jokes. Every Monday from 6 probably to 8. earlier than that.
8: that's like, what I'm saying. The it's 70s. the Joke
3: Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radio. Okay, Yahoo. Bob and I was just cool. leaving the theater.
6: I just <laughs> a Convertible... 1969 gold Cadillac with the white material, and I drove it up here.
16: And I started to do some thinking. ...around
6: it on the freeway, and I'm oh, having a really, it. really good time. Flat black Just classic. Smoking big splits and cruising
10: on Cadillac on the freeway.
6: freeway.
2: I am... ...taste in cuisine, but never his loyalty, until Gruber double-crossed him. Escaping with his life, Cluny is sidelined while his superior attempts to discover how Gruber was compromised, the investigation delves into Gruber's astonishing past, from his unpleasant days as an East German border guard to life as a narcotics agent, from his time in the tango clubs of Buenos Aires to a trip up the Amazon in search of Nazi gold. John Wessex's The Prague Deception is the third book of the John Clooney thrillers. Get it on Amazon.
7: Vegetable fats and glutinous derivatives, Washington, D.C. Correction of Directive 943456201. So issued a few minutes ago concerning the Concerning the fixed price of groundhog meat. In the Bureau Directive above named, the price fixed, low water level quotation on groundhog meat should read Groundhog Meat. Bob and Ray have been glad to read this as a public service.
3: Radio San Francisco
7: beauty This time as a public listen service live modern-
3: streaming radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go listen to live streaming radio or download a podcast, and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Mutiny Radio. fm. Why not make a donation? Mutiny Radio. FM. Streaming live to the station, Mutiny Radio.fm. District of the Mission, Mutiny, Mutiny Radio.fm. Radio. Mutiny Radio.
2: The world's deadliest assassins are already dead.
3: Streaming Radio. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny, Mutiny Radio. radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. Radio MutinyRadio.fm Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station.
7: MutinyRadio.fm
3: District of the Mission. MutinyRadio.fm Mutiny Radio...
2: The world's deadliest assassins are already dead. A shadowy group of killers for hire is eliminating world leaders, crime lords, and CIA agents. Inexplicably, the deceased contract killers have the DNA of people who are long dead. CIA agent John Clooney devises a volunteer to find
1: out how you can help.